Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And today on the show... I had the pleasure of chatting with my dear friend, Christina Sass. Christina is the co-founder and board member of Indela, a company that recruits the most talented software engineers on the African continent and pairs them with global tech companies as full-time distributed team members. In five years, Indela has hired almost 2,000 developers and become known as the best place to work in Africa, with tech campuses in Lagos, Nairobi, Kampala, and Kigali. Founded on the premise that brilliance is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not, Andela has built one of the world's most selective engineering institutions. Christina has built education and employment programs in China, Gaza, the West Bank, Kenya, and Nigeria. Prior to co-founding Andela, she directed the program department at the Clinton Global Initiative and advised the president and CEO of the MasterCard Foundation. Christina serves in the advisory council of the NYU Stern Center for Business and Human Rights and on the board of the nonprofit Global Giveback Circle, as well as the Summit Impact Foundation. Christina's work has been mentioned by Forbes, CNN, The New Yorker, NBC, and Wired, and she joined us to talk about how traveling and teaching around the world fostered her passion for youth employment, cracking jokes with Bill Gates, and how artificial intelligence will change the future of hiring. So please enjoy my conversation with Christina Sass. Christina, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for joining us. Where where do we find you today? So I have made the cross-country journey with my nine-week-old. So I just left uh, California in the San Francisco area and took a 52-hour train ride uh, across the country from San Fran to uh, Chicago and then rented a car. And now I'm back in in Williamsburg in Brooklyn. Wow. Back to where (laughs) you were before the Andela journey kicked off, correct? 
Yes. Yep. I was here uh, working for, for President Clinton and living in Williamsburg at the time. Um, and, and now I'm back. Remind me, what you, where did you grow up? Southern girl. So I grew up in, in Georgia. So I grew up on yes. the outskirts of Atlanta and then went to the University of Georgia and worked. My first job out of college was at the uh, Athens, Georgia YMCA. Yeah. So spent most of my years up until 25 in the great state. Incredible. Yeah. You know, you know, I'm from Texas. Yes. All of us Southern implants. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Um, well, I love that. And, and, we're, and you, you got a master's in international law and diplomacy. So clearly this was something, you know, you, you had, um, some itch to be involved in like the great, you know, movements and games that are, you know, dictating a lot of these things that affect the people across the world, whether it's yeah. aid or education, clearly you had, you had this bug in you from an early, an early start. Yeah, I did. So my dad immigrated to the States from, from Germany, from sort of a shattered post-World War II Germany. He was born in 42. So he was an infant and he came to the States at, at age 22 with basically like a suitcase and a couple hundred bucks and restarted. And so he and my mom, as my brother and I grew, they really carted us all over the world. And so I got the international bug from him, from going to see his family. And then we'd add on a trip to Poland and we'd add on, you know, um, a trip to Paris and to France. And so mostly across Europe, but I got this bug very early that um, the world was much, much larger and to get out there and see it pretty quickly. So yeah, after working at the Athens Georgia YMCA for several years, I basically saved all my money, which was nothing. I think, I think my full-time salary. This was, this was before grad school, right? Yeah. Before grad school. So I think my full-time salary was like $23,000, saved everything I could living with friends and stuff. And then I just went, I just went rogue. I just traveled, uh, to see friends that had worked at various camps and, and things from all over from Australia, from New Zealand. And then I ended up in Taiwan looking for international teaching jobs. And then I ended up teaching and living in Southeastern China, eventually in the Palestinian territories. That's when I, after working for several years overseas and kind of being deep in it, that's when I looked to focus more on youth employment and the path from education into employment and sought out grad school. And then I went back to the Fletcher School. And, and what was the Utaloy International School? Utah Long Sui Sao. <laughs> Utah Long Sui Sao. I, 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 yeah. I figured I was going to butcher the pronunciation. Yeah. That's my, that's a tiny bit of Chinese that I know. So it is a, it's a private school in Southeastern China that was truly one of the crazier places I've ever worked. There was a, a woman who was like a real estate investor out of Hong Kong and she owned this massive garden and it was intended to be a tourist destination in, in you know, kind of for the Guangdong province and it completely failed. And so it sat there for 10 years. And so it had, was like a perfectly cultivated feng shui garden with all these, you know, carvings and all this stuff. And then it just, it, everything grew over for 10 years. And then she put down a private school in the front of the property. And so I'm like in my mid twenties, raring to go and happen upon this teaching job. A really cool principal was building up the school to be accredited in the British school system. And so I jumped on board and did absolutely everything. I was like the librarian for a week. I taught all kinds of ESL and, and English literature to all levels of students, but I was like taught PE for a couple of weeks. And then in the summer times, 
when the um, the whole property was empty, built a leadership program and a, and a summer program there. And we would just take the kids off into the garden and rip down vines and find these like old, you know, Chinese scrolls. And it was just a, a crazy adventure. Unbelievable. And a lot of that you took to the work that you did in the West Bank, right? It was camps and leadership programs. and Yeah. So with Tomorrow's Youth, it was that is truly one of the most grassroots organizations I've ever worked with. So Hanny Mossery is the founder and benefactor, and it's just sort of like a godfather type figure. He's amazing and is still a good friend. Mm-hmm. He went through the entire peace process with Clinton and with Yasser Arafat. Like when the handshake in the Rose Garden happened, Yasser Arafat was staying at Hanny Mossery's house in Washington, D.C., and he kind of was known as sort of a middle-of-the-road Palestinian voice. And after years and years and years of going through this painful up-and-down political process, he just decided, I don't believe that this is necessarily going to bring forward the future that I want. And so he invested his money and time in literally driving through the camps and asking parents what they wanted for their kids. And then his family had this huge building in Nablus, which is, you know, the heart of both intifadas. So it's just a, a, mm-hmm. a city tormented by violence. And he set up this youth center there. And so we taught very young kids all the way up to kind of 12, 13. I taught several mothers classes. Mothers wanted to learn English and computer skills that their kids were learning so they could help them. But yes, it was. It was sort of like, what does the local community need and what resources do we have to bring to bear and listen to them and then provide it? So yeah, it was an extraordinary experience. The West Bank was a crazy place to work too. <laughs> and then how did you, I mean, it's just, I, it's so funny because we've been friends now for, it, it seems like forever, but it's been around 11 years is when yeah. um, our dear friend, Michael Hebb, who's also been on the podcast, um, introduced us Yeah, and you were, you were deep in the game, helping build out, you know, the annual Clinton Global Initiative events, which I don't think people today realize how important these were, but they were beyond a West Coast Davos because it had Mm -hmm. an impact focus. Mm -hmm. It had, you know, a different agenda, but it was, it was as important of any, as any event was in the world in terms of motivating capital and heads of state and Nobel prize winners. But what was the jump? Like, how did you go from being like boots on the ground in China and West Bank to connecting with the CGI group? Well, it was a big leap of faith. So after kind of gallivanting for a while and being a gypsy, always focused on youth and, and camps or educational programs. But I went back to grad school and then I graduated in, you know, a perfect time to have an international relations degree, which is 2009, <laughs> the collapse of the global economy. And so I ended up taking a six month consultancy with the Clinton Global Initiative. They needed a workforce that was sort of highly skilled and a little more advanced but only for for six months around the annual meeting. And so I worked in basically education and women's empowerment on the commitment to action side of the CGI model. And so basically after grad school, I had not much of a plan. So I took a glory, it was essentially a glorified internship. I think they paid us like 8K for six months in New York, which as you know, does not get you too far. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I had six months to the day to start paying back my grad school loans. And so I Took a, took a big risk and took this six-month consultancy. And it is so fascinating how high-level event management has a whole lot in common with the complex logistics of running 
childcare of all shapes and sizes and education and after school programs and all these things. It's like managing parents, managing difficult, you know, children, managing multiple stakeholders and complex schedules. This actually brought a lot to the Clinton Global Initiative model, where eventually I was given all of the difficult members or members that were struggling to make their commitment to action. I was known to have that Southern touch of being very firm, but very polite. So yeah, I did this consultancy where we were getting people to make commitments to action in the world of education and employment, and then in girls and women's empowerment. I just went all in and it was so fun. And it was like having three full-time jobs. And then at the end of it, I, you know, it was like a little bit of luck and timing and a lot of hard work. And then I moved up to deputy director of the program department, and then eventually director of the program department. My plan was work with all these incredible people who are out there doing cutting edge work in youth education and employment, and then go work for the best of them. And instead, I really loved CGI and I loved being a part of all of building those, especially the cross-sector commitments to action when you were bringing you know, public-private partnerships together. And so I ended up staying and uh, working there for about four years and running the program department. What were some of the highlights there? Like, give us an example of a day where you're just like, this is wild and really like delivering for you on what you were seeking in terms of like creative problem solving at scale and in the impact arena. So I think the coolest thing is, was getting huge power brokers and people that can write big checks, getting them into the room because of a big name, but putting an unbelievable young person from Palestine or from Uganda who had an insanely cool idea and was executing on it well. And so you'd walk into the room thinking you were there for Mukhtar Kent. And really um, you end up walking out and being blown away by the social entrepreneur operating in East Africa that you then get super passionate about. I love that that's your name drop, by the way, is Mukhtar Kent. It's not like <laughs> it wasn't LeBron James. <laughs> nope. And they were, you know, there were just, there were the crazier moments. I got to meet the incredible world leaders. So take Mukhtar Kent, for mm-hmm. example. You know, we put him on a stage with Queen Rania, who's doing incredible things in, um, in Jordan. And then Katie Couric to moderate that event, who's a mm-hmm. great moderator, but is also like very socially minded. And you get to really direct that conversation towards girls and women's empowerment. We did a panel with those three people and a female head of state from West Africa. And Mukhtar Kent in the middle of it was like talking about how he was surprised that women couldn't own property across most of the African continent. And it's like anybody Mm. that's worked there for years knows that. And so to see that kind of aha moment taking place on stage was like, yeah, man, it's the world's a lot different than even global leaders think it is. So from from a perspective of Mm. getting to open people's minds and getting to focus on things that I thought were moving the needle, programs that I thought were making a huge difference. That was the thrust of the impact work. And then there's just like being around. So I think President Clinton, he has uh, many, many flaws, but he is also a once in a generation combination of heart and mind. He has a photographic memory. So I'd have a team of people working on the right speaker and the right topic. For example, a Latin American woman who's also an expert in rainforests. I mean, we'd research Mm. that. We'd research something like that for a month and then we'd sit down with him and he'd be like, what about Susan? And what about Joanne? And what about, you know, like you just First like, name basis. I mean, uh, for a very specific topic, you know? Yeah. So that was, it was just incredible to, to constantly be in a dialogue with him about what after an entire career of, you know, working for social change, what he thought mm. was going to 
work and what he really saw as the future. So it was, it was really a benefit to be able to work with him at the, you know, kind of at the end of his career where he was no longer running for anything. It really was about impact. Yeah. And I just remember in 2010, Clinton being the Michael Jordan of public speaking. Like (laughs) you would just give this guy a microphone and he would blow your mind and he would just read the room and be like, all right, well, I'll talk to y'all for 20 minutes about something that's going to change your life. He was, I have to say like being on the other end of that. I mean, he is, and you just like, you set him off and let him go. And it was so fun, particularly at the the annual Clinton global initiative university. He got Mm -hmm. so pumped about these incredible university students and their ideas. I can picture being backstage, my whole team with like head in hands, just freaking out because he's 50 minutes over, you know, his speaking time. And there's like a yeah. red light blinking in front of him. And my man is just like, he's on fire. He, he yeah. zero shits. He's like, I'm in my zone. I'm having a good time. This is why, what he lives for. But yes, one of the f- most fun parts of that job was, was sort of that no matter how, what a high level that person had gotten to still walking on a stage with William Jefferson Clinton made, made people nervous and made people. And, you know, the green room there is, at CGI is like no one has their assistant. There's nothing to really hide behind. It's just these incredible power brokers. And somehow being on stage with with President Clinton would make them like really quite nervous. And so I got to sit with these incredible world leaders in this very vulnerable moment and just wow. hold them in that space and just be like, look, he's invited you here because you're extraordinary at this one thing. Really just talk them through how to make it most successful. So I'll, I'll tell you one anecdote that will <laughs> tell you how fun this was. So um, I got the the honor of meeting Bill Gates when he came. He and I were sitting in the green room beforehand and I was briefing him. He'd been at the UN General Assembly events. And so it was all very professional and you know, here's the percentage of people that are attending and this many people have said they're interested in global health and da 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 da. And I just realized that like I wasn't breaking through and it was going to mm-hmm. be, and it was an armchair chat between the two of them, which should be really like, like this open, yeah. honest, funny. And I was like, I got to break through to this guy, you know? Mm-hmm. So I told him, I was like, sir, you know, a lot of people have been going through these panels of, you know, several different speakers. They're very excited about a one-on-one exchange with you two. He's like, really? It was the first time he kind of leaned forward. And I was like, I just decided to go for it. I was like, yeah, actually my staff has been telling me that we should title it two bills and some change. (laughs) And he is like paused for a second and then laughed out loud. And after that, we were just, we were there together and laughing. I love it. It was awesome. It was hilarious. That was my moment where I was like, I'm either going to get fired or I'm going to make this a much better session. (laughs) But I love your language. You were there together versus there separately. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that's something that I imagine really you might have learned through all the work that you did internationally or really served you. And the reason I wanted to go deeper on this thread is just because, you know, this is exactly what I was hoping to understand more. Like it sounds like you were, you could unlock a lot of wisdom and a lot of relationships. I imagine a lot of these people remained advisors of yours as you went on to create new, you know, entities or, 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 or companies, correct? Absolutely. Yes. Investors, advisors, people that you can just, you know, call up and bounce ideas off of. Yes. I got really the honor to, to bring a lot of them with me and many of my colleagues from Clinton Global as well. Mm-hmm. I think part of being around those types of ideas, and this is part of why President Clinton started the whole thing, was like, yes, an average citizen can actually dedicate themselves to something and make an extraordinary difference. 
you know, you used to tell the story that he'd have everybody sit in his chair as president, be like, sit there. Yes, you can, you too can sit there. And so for me in my own life, it was, I got to meet all these incredible people while organizing CGI and then eventually had my own shot. And I was like, not only is this possible, but it's, it's plausible if you put your mind to it. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Well, and I know you've done so many other incredible things and worked with amazing organizations, but I do want to you know, jump to Andela, which is just such a generationally important company. It's a market-based solution 
that is bringing high-performing engineering training into you know Africa and investing in Africa and investing in the most talented software developers. And a lot of the work I know you get to dedicate your time to now is expanding that tent further and further into these communities. Um, but take us back to the, to the start. How did this thing happen? Yeah. Okay. So here's the short version. So I kind of left the field to go back to grad school and then Clinton Global, which I told you about. Mm -hmm. After CGI, I wanted to get back out into it. And so I found the organization and the leader who is, I felt, doing really transformational work. And I went to work for Rita Roy, Mm -hmm. who was one of those, like, she was one of those people who was, you know, a speaker at CGI and came to the event. And and she's also a Fletcher grad. And so we had a lot in common. And she was building a foundation focused almost exclusively on education and employment in Africa. So I went to work for her and I was bringing together the 12 or 13 biggest grantees of the foundation who were kind of my, like, they were just my heroes. They were people that were doing unbelievable work across the continent. So Fred Swanaker of African Leadership Academy and now African Leadership University and ALX and James Mwangi, social entrepreneur that that built Equity Bank, which is you know a bank dedicated to the bottom ten percent and getting them into formal banking, and Patrick Awa, the president of Ashesi University in Ghana, which is you know one of the the best uh, institutions on the whole continent, and just these unbelievable leaders. So I got to bring them together once a year and talk about how we could break down some barriers and and do collaborations between their organizations to really increase employment on the continent. Mm-hmm. And in 2014, I was tasked with bringing everybody to Nairobi and really talking about kind of the cutting edge of education technology and how that was going to affect ed tech on the continent mm-hmm. in the next, you know, 10 years or so. So, I made a call to my dear friend, Jeremiah Johnson, whom I met at the Summit Series. We had an ongoing friendship, and but also like a really, we challenged each other in, in sort of like what is most effective in gaining access to education, really quality education. And so he was the co-founder of 2U, a phenomenal company, one of the only ed tech IPOs in the, in the past decade, mm-hmm. and just impressive company up and down. However, it was working with, you know, Berkeley and, and UNC Chapel Hill and Georgetown. And that's a lot different than working with institutions on the continent. And so I had been telling him for years to come and see and let's find ways to work together. And so in 2014, I actually did send him a ticket and an invitation. I was like, no, seriously, come talk to these leaders. These are the cutting edge of, of, you know, education and employment across the continent. And they'd love to hear what you're doing it to you, what you're learning. And if there's ways we can do something big together. So he came, took me up on it. And uh, it was his first trip to sub-Saharan Africa. I took him all around. We went to Kibera. We saw girls tech programs and, IT students. And and then we spent three days with this group of leaders, him telling them what they were learning and seeing at 2U and hearing about Ashesi University and about Equity Bank and ALU Mm. and all these things. And so I pitched an idea, which was, let's take something like engineers and let's use a 2U-like program where we take Ashesi University's engineering program and we enable them to serve 10x the the number of students because they do it online. Um, And we use all of the tools and systems that 2U has built up over time to do that. And then we 
find the employers on the back end. And as soon as they graduate, you know, they're snatched up. Let's focus on something like engineers that we know are in high demand. You know, MasterCard Foundation can fund it. To you has the know-how and Ashesi has got the students. And, you know, I basically pitched a large scale collaboration of that sort. Mm-hmm. Like most ideas, they go through bumps and this one, it, did, it wasn't even a bump. It completely failed. Ashesi had a five-year plan that did not include this. It was just too early for mm-hmm. an entirely online you know, other institutions were interested in it. It was really early for 2U to think about operating anywhere else, you know, besides a U.S. market. It was just too early for its time in a bunch of different ways. But Jeremy was certainly hooked by the talent, the depth of the, of the talent pool that he saw, the opportunity. And this is what I was pushing him. I was like, dude, don't tell me about access to education at, at Berkeley and Georgetown. Like, come get in, you know, get in the, or an arena where it's like, you know, you've got all of the talent, but not the, you know, not access at all. And at this point, I'm sorry, did you know that you wanted to start a company yet? Or was this just still like moving? You, this sounds still in sort of like your ecosystems approach to just like the things that you were passionate about. This wasn't with the intention of starting a business with, you know, Jeremy at that point in time. It wasn't. It was wow. really I, this obsession with youth employment and different ways to slice it, different mm-hmm. ways to get at it. And I knew that the talent was there. I knew that there was a huge opportunity there. And Word for word, I remember saying to Jeremy, like, just get in here with me, like solve this problem. I don't know what it looks like, but I know that there's a huge opportunity and I know that a brain and heart and mind like yours will you know, help me break through to what this can be. And sure enough, that was January. Two you went public in March. Obviously, they were marching down that path, mm-hmm. but um, two you went public in March. I think Jeremy was looking for his next big, huge idea. And he said, look, absent the tuition, which is the revenue model of to you, he's like, what, how could we make it work? So we looked a, a bunch of different ways. And as it turns out, software developers are in such high demand and are at such, you know, high margins and salaries respective to other jobs. We were like, if we do this right, we can find extraordinary talent. And by placing one person, we can recruit 10 others to bring them into the pipeline and bring their skills, you know, up to the highest level and also employ them. So we put out a pilot to do this. Um, and really we, we thought we were working with, you know, a group of other entrepreneurs that eventually became our co-founders. But at the time, Jeremy and I were like, maybe we'll mentor them. We'll invest in them and we'll put this idea out there, but we'll let them Mm -hmm. execute on it. Once we were, I'd say a month and a half into it, it was clear. We were utterly obsessed (laughs) and this is what we were going to do. We knew that when we put out a pilot in Lagos, Nigeria, and we used our kind of Nigerian co-founders Twitter account to put out an application that said, do you want to get paid to become a world-class software developer? We got about 700 applicants to the first cohort. Mm -hmm. And then we put a little bit more emphasis on it. Maybe we put it on a couple other sites for the cohort, second cohort. We got 2,500 applications. For how many spots? Well, we didn't even know. We were just going to see what we got. You know, we didn't know how many we would accept, but we were using a kind of a a testing service that was like a proxy for IQ. Mm -hmm. And the testing service called us and they were like, what the hell is this? You're crashing our systems because you have so many applicants. We've never seen so many applicants for one job. And you have 48 candidates in this pool that we consider to be in the top 2% of IQ in the world. Wow. In the world. And so that's where we were like, we absolutely know we can find the talent. 
everybody we know in the startup game in the States needs software developers. Like there's a huge opportunity here. And that's where we kind of quit everything else and just utterly put our heads down to focus on, on this thing, which became Andela. Unbelievable. And it's just, it's, I, I understand why it would have, you know, 2,500 applicants out the gate and, 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 you know, unearth because, because talent or capacity for talent, you know, is distributed equally, but opportunity certainly isn't. And, you know, I don't consider myself in the top 2% of intelligent people in the world, but I've had, you know, so much access and exposure to people who are, I can just like, you know, like we were talking about with our sort of early exposure to these brilliant people, you know, we got to, we got to save a lot of the pain of uh, gaining that wisdom ourselves, you know, or never getting there. And I think that, you know, you hear the metaphor, teach a man to fish, but it's like, you're not, this is an empowering technology. Like you're saying, I'm not, you know, giving you a job that you might lose or gain based on, you know, macro market forces. You're saying like, we're going to train you in the job of the future. And you now, I mean, I imagine these people are in the top earning percentiles in Nigeria, right? If they're working with GitHub or Headspace or these, these companies that you guys work with. Well, I would say that they that they are now. That, so we we were in 2014. We were working with people who were just starting out in their career. But mm-hmm. essentially, that was that's what we were saying to them: is even if you train with us in you know Ruby on Rails, uh, let's say for example, that may not be around in 15 years. But the skill set that you build up, the muscles that you build up. you know, of being able to learn quickly and shift and change. Mm -hmm. Uh, We sought out lifelong learners who had, we had saw evidence in their background of mastery, you know, that, that required themselves and, you know, hour after hour of chipping away at a, at a complex problem that those kind of skill set would, would serve them well. And so, yes, that was our, our bet was we can find incredible problem solvers whose brains are wired for the type of of problem that is software development. And then we find people that are extremely, you know, long-term values and mission aligned. And I can't think of a more important sector to have virtuous people in. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we look at, you know, our generation, I don't know what your grandma used to tell you, but it was always like doctors and lawyers. And that is, you know, the past, like Mm -hmm. the future is technologists will shape the future and the decisions that they make about technology platforms and tools, whether they are virtuous or not, will have massive impact. And so that's what we're looking for. You know, top, top, top problem solvers that loved and were dedicated towards a life of technology and that wanted to, you know, really change the world and hold certain values that play out through the technology they build. You've now, you know, spent pretty much your whole adult life thinking about this work and, and, mm-hmm. and dedicating your time to this space. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious your thoughts on like, you know, sort of the, the things that, you know, we can be leaning into right now that yeah. domestically. I think um, the application of artificial intelligence to um, sort of job searching is something I'm actually very excited about. So at Andela, we didn't have perfect tools, but over and over again, we looked at how applicants looked, you know, in the application period, all the way through to how they performed on client work. And we made assumptions about what we thought would work and didn't work. And then we got smarter and smarter and smarter by who performed well on clients. And it wasn't necessarily what you would think for a software developer. So for example, social and emotional intelligence is hugely important in remote client work. The typical stereotype of a software developer in the States is like moody, 
opinionated, wears their big headphones, doesn't want a lot of input. And that is like false. That's utterly false for what we found makes a great software developer. So the application to different, all these different groups coming into the workforce today is that like, I don't want to have to convince you that this person who is in prison is also a great technologist. And I shouldn't have to because they're sitting in front of a, a computer screen and coding. And what you should care about is the quality of their code. And so if we can find the skill sets and um, the things in a person's past that will dictate if they're going to be good at this or not, we can just make much smarter decisions you know, about our workforces. A great proxy from one of my team members, my top, top team members, a guy named Evan Greenlow, he said, you know, like who brings in a top soccer player? Like who's going to bring in Messi and be like, how do you feel about your performance on the field? And do you feel that you're a good team player? Like no one gives a shit. They've been watching every kick, every pass that he's made um, for his entire life. And they know how he's going to perform into the future. And so there are so many different jobs of the future that will be just like that, where we can, you know, we can know by a way a, p- a person performs that it's it will be utterly merit based, and it will overcome, the, you know, some of the the lack of a formal pedigree. Art of the hustle will be right back after this short break. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer 
and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Those skill jobs, you think that those are more vocational in training versus like four-year university, or are we going to see a new type of certification that informs potential partners and employers of our skill sets? Like, where do you think this goes? Well, I think the future belongs to certainly in the realm of technology. I think it, it belongs to people that enjoy re-upping their skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a, you know, not a complete answer to your question, but I do think it's going to change so rapidly that people who enjoy coming out of the fray and retraining for, you know, six months, every three years, um, are going to, to get the benefit, you know, of, a part of the future of work. I do. I think there's a place for the four-year degree. Yes. I don't think it will. I don't think we'll do away with it entirely, but I think there will be, you know, many, many more entry points to good paying jobs because of what you can prove that you can build, not because of where you can prove you got into for school. I think if you can do something in a really scrappy way on the side, I love, for instance, for software developers now, there are application processes and systems where an employer can watch you, you know, get a problem and get into just exactly as you would. It's in their, their computer system, but you can look at what they look up on the web and what they look up in GitHub and how they build and how they problem solve. Um, it's much more the real world than, Mm -hmm. okay, come up to the whiteboard and, you know, and fill something out. We need to understand how people's brains solve problems that's going to be a much better indicator of how they're going to perform on your team than where they got into college. So I don't have all the answers of where the workforce is going to go, Mm. but the entry points will be a lot more of a meritocracy and, and inevitably the workforce will get more diverse, more international. And all those things are incredibly good things. Totally. And, you know, one of the keys for Summit makes it a little more difficult to manage in terms of like delivering on people's interests. But, you know, the more diverse the inputs, the more complex and impactful the outputs. Like, I I agree with you that diversity is its own value. It's not like some addendum thing. One thing that this brings to mind, I have a buddy who, uh, you know, this is what what I'm going to talk about is like, you know, trade secret from six years ago. So I'm sure he's so far advanced now, but his name's Liram Siegel and he founded Click Health, which is like one of the largest healthcare agencies in the world. And they hire thousands of people on behalf of compounds, right? Could be a startup or a professor at, at, you know, Pitzer, it could be, you know, uh, Pfizer, right? In a multi-billion dollar compound or whatever. And they'll hire the team and name the drug and train the doctors and make the marketing. And and so, so you're taking sometimes these, these companies from three to 300 people through this process. And um, so they hire a lot of people. And mm-hmm. I remember this is, this is you know, a long, this, it might, may, might even be longer ago. He was super excited about it. He's like, some of the things that we figured out, one, when we interview people, we put a door that takes you straight outside as close as possible to the room that they're actually like doing the tests in. So huh. they have an easy option to just bounce. Yeah. They don't have to say it's goodbye dope. to anybody. Yeah. And then uh, you, you did, they would do the first test online. They'd say, hey, I mean, like you could 
cheat if you wanted to, but like the second test is in person. You actually have to know this stuff yep. in order to do this job. So it doesn't really make sense to cheat. Right. And then, and then the third thing was when you would get there and you were in your room and you're in front of the module, there was a board with 20 names and, and extensions on it. And they would say, Hey, you can hit up anybody on this board. It could be, nice. Mir- it could be Miriam. It could be, you know, it could be Rochelle. It could be whoever about any question you want. And here are their ex- extensions. So it's actually one person or two people that would be oh, at the end of those extensions. Nice. And they were instructed to give you the answer to anything that you asked. I mean, but it's like who took advantage of it? Who was exactly. going to be collaborative and ask? Yep. Ex- yep. So, so it can, it can source these new, and this is, you know, again, like ancient history. I'm sure there's people like yourself who have even, you know, more thoughtful, more, you know, scalable, um, sorting methods, but I just, I just, I, I, I do agree with you that like, you know, especially for certain things like we're talking about, um, you know, like there will be a meritocratization, yeah. but I think that the key is having the building blocks. Like if you weren't, you know, there's so many savage inequalities in nutrition in, yep. in terms of how well your brain can function or, you know, the, the, pl- the, the, the basis of education maybe that you have. So you, ha- did you, did you learn how to learn? So yep. I wonder where we need to like, if we're thinking about this now, like I'm, I'm almost trying to get you to put your, you know, uh, your heal the world, Christina ass, yeah. like traveling around the planet hat on, like, and I know you, there's still so much you're doing with Andela, but I'm curious, like, where is the, where are some of these points we should be focusing on? Yeah. I mean, okay. So obviously the, the, you know, geography that I know best is, is sub-Saharan Africa and there, for example, 10 years ago, we read all this stuff about, you know, well, as soon as they get the internet, all these problems will be solved. And that's just, Mm. that is just false. So one of the lessons of Andela is that like, it is, it's long-term investment in people's learnings. It's making learning a part of their job. Now we hired for people that have a passion for learning and that they enjoy that, but you still have to say, you know, 25% of your job forever is going to be learning and relearning and re-relearning. And do you, you know, do you want to commit to that? And so for, you know, for the parts of the world that desperately need this sort of access, I would say we need to get rid of the pipe dream that we're going to lay the fiber cable and people are just going to rise up out of poverty. That is not going to be the case. Like we need to invest heavily in, in learning platforms and giving people time and mentorship. And those of us that have gone through our career path, dedicating really being mentors and helping people problem solve. And it's just, it's time and exposure. So for software developers, we have extraordinary tools out there. There's great tools out there. We just need to get it to the right people in the right places and then give them, you know, some time and mentorship. So if you take women in technology, for example, the two top reasons why they don't pursue careers in in technology, even in the States, but definitely in other parts of the world, is because they just don't believe that there are jobs for them. They don't believe there are jobs because they don't see mentors. They don't see people like themselves moving up. And it is happening, but we got to make that known to people and bring that next generation you know, up with us. So, and the same thing is the tools that we're building to train software developers online, it's happening in so many different sectors. I mean, look at what just happened in COVID. We never thought that so many companies would believe in distributed work and that that would be the way of the future. Well, it turns out when that's all you got, you adapt pretty freaking quickly. Oh, yeah. So now we know that you can, you know, train for and do an enormous number of of tasks in a completely distributed fashion. And so we need to apply ourselves to, to taking that, you know, expert training and, and dispersing it evenly and equally. This is what I thought 2U did very, very well. So 2U, they 
were responsible for Georgetown's nursing program. They proved that the people who learned nursing online learned it better than the people who were on site at Georgetown. That's in, that's insane, but it just it form fits function. What are you teaching in what way? Now, of course, everybody has to go to a hospital and practice putting in needles and you know doing the things that you can only do that are tactile. But there are other pieces of that learning that's like, let's figure out how to teach it the best with the best teacher that we now we can absolutely can scale. We know the best time for people, you know, time in the day for people to learn. We can track how they solve problems. We can. So all of those things about learning a career path can be now done more specifically online. And all those things make it more diverse and more of a meritocracy. Yeah, I'm with it. And I'm not a. a techno utopianist. I don't think that like technology by nature of being technology is good for the world. And I don't think it will save us all. But I do think that there's these really interesting factors that get broken down like these, you know, institutional disadvantages where someone on the other side of it has a reason for you not having that thing. Like they have an economic interest in keeping things the way they are. Right. And so I think things like Starlink, where, you know, globally in the near future, you're going to have internet worldwide in sub-Saharan yep. Africa that's better than, you know, many parts of Williamsburg. Um, yeah. And, and you know, simultaneously, you know, we're going to be moving to a future where, you know, we'll have autonomous vehicles. We'll have even more. And, and I'm not saying this in a good way. Like, I feel like my work now chases me to bed, to breakfast, to yeah. the bathroom, to wherever we go, we can work now. We have a supercomputer in our pocket and in front of our face, like 10 hours a day. So, yeah. you know, I imagine that you think about that, you know, that, cause, cause I know how much you love the in-person and how important it is for you personally. Yeah. Where, your thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't really a question. So, this is more. I think, no, I, I think you're a hundred percent right. It is a tool and that tool can be used for good. It can be used for evil. It can be neutral. And so I think education is the great democratizer. But in the new workforce, given you know distributed tools, it's like anything else. You can use it in a shitty half-assed way, or you can really build people's career paths, but it requires deep dedication and it requires using all the tools in the right way over the right period of time. But it is, it's, it's overtaking all of our lives. I would just rather it overtake our lives in a way that provide people great jobs, not just shitty entry-level work. Nigeria, for example, Lagos, Nigeria is the most entrepreneurial place in the world. I would, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a more entrepreneurial group of people. They can survive in a thousand different ways and create their own small businesses, but that's not what they want. They want global careers. They want to compete globally and they're, they're damn sure impressive and can compete. But, but what gives them that access? Like what gives the badass software developer from Lagos the opportunity to compete globally? Well, I don't want them to all have to pick up and go to Silicon Valley. In fact, I'd much rather them have the inputs and everything that they've learned from growing up in Lagos that will make them more competitive in a way if they're able to show that they can use those same skills to build a career path. That's so thoughtful. And and you had mentioned women in technology. And, you know, I want to be respectful of your time and and I really appreciate you being on the podcast, Um, but you know, you, you very famously, at least in our generation have raised more or the most or in the top, you know, percentage of venture capital behind, you know, this idea with Andela and, you know, one, it's just, I don't, I don't, that's not, you know, the, the measuring stick for you, I know. And for people who are thoughtful, they're not like, oh yeah, that that's the 
ends that get you to the means, right? That's the activity that you hope results in the outcome. But it also means that you built something incredibly investable, right? And I imagine that you, you know, dealt with some things that are, you know, utter bullshit and were, you know, (laughs) difficult and sexist. And I also imagine you found, you know, really great advantages, Um, or perhaps you don't think gender played into it at all, but I would just love to hear, you know, your, your experience a little bit on that. Yeah. Thank you. You know, I have to say I had the best business partner in the world. And so I think Jeremy and I were an incredible duo and that part of the ability to raise was, you know, based on really both of our backgrounds, his Mm -hmm. cutting edge ed tech in the States and my work on the continent um, and more globally before that. But um, but yeah, it's still, it's a yardstick that people use to measure. And so regardless of how I feel about it, it is a way that people measure entrepreneurs. And so I'm certainly out there trying to help women raise left and right for all the reasons that we know that they build great businesses. You know, venture capital funding follows other VC funding. So we got to get the, you know, money in the right, in the right hands and in the right direction. So I feel very lucky. We had incredible long-term mission aligned investors. And we certainly kissed a lot of frogs along the way, but didn't marry Mm -hmm. them. I didn't have the horrendous experience that other female founders and and all female teams have. And I think that is partially because Jeremy and I worked together. And so I'm, you know, I'm grateful for that, but I can't entirely empathize. But what I can do is tell women who are out raising today that we do not have to put up with any of that bullshit. <laughs> Again, this is another realm where I hope that the future is 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 much more merit-based and based in in data and what we can, you know, prove. But yeah, I had a really positive experience and I feel very grateful that we were able to raise that much and so it's my responsibility now to to pay that forward. And I guess taking us out on that, you know, I know that you're now focused once again on really like, cause Indela of course shifted to the like top quintile of developer talent and, you know, IQ that leads to these, you know, world-class um, engineering positions. And I know that you're working to increase the ladder and enable more people that are in that, like, you know, more, I guess, normalized group that, that also need these opportunities. Yeah. So I'm thinking about all sorts of things, but I think what Andela is now really operating in mid-market for software developers. So folks that that have some experience and we're hiring from all over the continent. And I think pretty quickly you'll see us expand beyond that. Where we've got to put some more time and effort is on is on these entry-level folks and how we get them sustainable on-ramps to the global economy. And that's when I really look back at what to you is doing. They found large groups of employers first. They work backwards to perfect the training. I think that really the labor force marketplace is still broken. You have all these employers saying, well, I need this skill set and this skill set and this skill set. And they're not talking to the community college down the road and the university down the road. There Mm -hmm. are certainly some examples of that, but I would like to get back into a hyper focus on, we can find the skill sets, we can find the people, they don't need a fancy pedigree. What they need is to you know, prove that they can do a specific work and then to take large scale employers that need specific skill sets and really drag them into the education system and say, you know, work together, tell them exactly what you need to see so that you can hire these types of people. So I think my next move will be back to the highly, highly motivated young person who's who's just starting out on their career path and is willing to hustle, is willing to work, but where there's, you know, kind of a, a whole pipeline of people that are invested in them and then an employer at the at the end of that. So we'll see. I'm excited. And in the meantime, 
I'm like the biggest champion for all of the Andela alumni now, which is over a thousand people who are out there building businesses and becoming tech leaders. So I'm just cheering them on and helping to connect and move them up in a thousand ways. Uh, I still work with our, our advisory council, which is an awesome group that helps to advise the, the senior team. Jeremy knows he can call me at day or night for anything mm-hmm. that he needs. Uh, and so it's wonderful to be in that position and um, to be able to still support them. And I know that they'll support me in whatever I decide to dive into next. Well, thank you, Christina. Incredible. Thank you so much, Jeff. I will never forget the times working with with you all in the Summit Series. I had so much fun. We did have fun. Well, enjoy the new baby. Enjoy Williamsburg. Thank you. Please let us know however we can be supportive of your work. And uh, thank you for listening. Art of the Hustle. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.